0: talk a little bit about luxury the luxury space we have a perfect guest to do this travel and leisure says this next individual has done more to bring design to the travel experience than any other living person i did steal that from your website i'm just going to tell you (laughs) Uh, i could talk about the gramercy park hotel i could talk about 40 Bonn. i could talk about the global partnership with marriott but we'll let him do it ian schrager in the house here with jason and myself he's at the bloomberg year ahead in luxury summit and you first of all welcome So cool to have you here. I have to say, Jason and I have been talking about this all week. We've been really excited. We really respect what you've done in the hospitality space. We've stayed in your hotels. So when you look at luxury, uh, so so much of the world is being disrupted. Where do you see it going? Where do you see the luxury world going?
2: Well, I think uh, up to now, luxury has been uh, defined almost as a business classification. Uh, And to me, it has nothing to do with wealth. It has nothing to do with price. It's certainly not a business classification. It's more a state of the mind. And I think, uh, to me, luxury is unrelated to how much something costs. It only matters how it makes you feel. And uh, if you get a good value proposition, but you have made to feel great, that to me is luxury.
1: Well, and one and of the things that you certainly pioneered, and we talk about you as someone who essentially invented the, the notion of a boutique hotel, but you also started to think, it seems, about spaces beyond the room in a hotel, beyond the room that you're going to sleep in, and these public spaces, indoor, uh, outdoor. How does that go forward, do, do you think, especially now that Everyone seems to be uh, doing it. How do you reinvent the n- the next leg of this?
2: Well, it, you know, I like to think that uh, uh, we do it better than anybody else, but uh, it's a kind of very self-evident idea. You know, why not have a microcosm of the best that a city has to offer right downstairs in the public space and why that public space should be geared towards the people that are living in the city because everyone that goes to a hotel, wants to go where people in the know of that city go so mm-hmm. that's secret the public space is not for the hotel guests it's for the people of the city because that's where the uh hotel guests want to go
0: okay i know i think this isn't your property but forgive me for bringing it up but we were just we talk about i was just in london jason's been in london we talk about the ned and like that whole restaurant space man it's packed and you know it's not people staying at the hotel it's just everybody in the city going there i mean that concept is brilliant
2: well, you know, I think it... And it, I know what,
0: you. this is what you do.
2: Well, it, it, it's a kind of very, very obvious idea. And it, by the way, it's not original. That's the way hotels were 100, 150 years ago. The real estate guys got a hold of it and got rid of it because they couldn't figure out how to make money with it. But uh, it's just, uh, it just a great idea. And the best part about it is is that it also drives rate and occupancy at a hotel.
0: It's also another revenue stream. I mean, I Big know you say, say luxury is not, you know, you don't think about it maybe necessarily as a business. But you think about if you're bringing in other people who aren't even staying at the hotel, score.
2: Oh, definitely. It used to be treated as lost leaders. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. <laughs> uh, you're know, in business. You can't have a lost leader. Everything has to contribute to the bottom line.
1: I want to ask you about this brand, Public, because uh, it seems it's more value oriented uh, from what uh, I can tell. When you think about the year ahead and you know, sort of the, the umbrella in which we are discussing uh, all of this, are we headed toward a more sort of value conscious type of c- economy? Because we've been in this long bull market. People seem to be waiting for the other shoe to drop. Does luxury need to come, for lack of a better term, sort of down market uh, a little bit?
2: Uh, Luxury is already accessible to everybody. It's not just reserved for the 1%. It's not just reserved for rich people. That's an old-fashioned idea, I think. Uh, I think, uh, you know, as right right now what's going on in this country, I I think uh, the middle class is under attack, uh, and you have the 1%ers and you have everybody else. And I think uh, it's an old-fashioned notion to think that luxury is only something that costs a lot of money and is only for a very few rich people. Everybody is not entitled to have it. It's a kind of more modern idea. And I don't think that the value proposition has anything to do with an economic cycle. Hmm. I think people want value for the money. And as we all know, the rich people want value for the money more than anybody else. Right.
1: But That's how they got to be rich.
0: (laughs) It's a great point because we had the CEO of Ahold, a big supermarket chain. We had uh, the CEO of WW, Mindy Grossman. So she's looking at wellness and staying fit. He's looking at feeding people. And we talked about this whole idea that if you can afford it, you can get great stuff. But they are really trying to reach out. Why shouldn't everybody have access to great food? Why shouldn't they have access to staying fit and well? And you're thinking about that the same thing when it comes to the hospitality space.
2: Uh, I think it's critically important. Uh, to to evaluate that, you're seeing it already. You know, you're seeing gourmet chefs like Daniel Hum, who's had the best restaurant uh, in the world for the past few years, and and Danny Meyer, who uh, is renowned for doing great restaurants, offering fast, casual, gourmet food. right? Uh, Because people want quality, and they want it fast and casual, and they want it less expensive. You're going to see it in every aspect of our life.
0: Ian, how much, though, is a result of the Ubers, the Airbnbs? Like, people have come out with a different way to stay in a city, right? And some of them can be value propositions. You know, these upstarts that are no longer upstarts, kind of just shaking up how we do things.
2: Well, that part of it, you know, the funny thing about it is uh, I have uh, four girls and one son, uh, and the four girls are all uh, uh, in their uh, early 20s, and none of them want cars.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> it's you know, so when true. I was growing up,
1: that's all you wanted was a car, like, right? Uh, uh,
2: Mecca. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so those things change. But in the hotel world, the way to deal with a disruptor like Airbnb is to do things they can't do. They can't do communal spaces. Yeah, they can't right. do the public gathering spaces we do in, in the lobbies and all. So that even plays to our strength and is a way of, of dealing with Airbnb. Right. You know, you can't stop Airbnb by throwing up legal obstacles. Right. That will delay it. It won't stop progress. <laughs> you know, you got it react to a good idea with a better idea.
1: Very good. Ian Schrager, what a treat. Founder and chairman of the Ian Traeger Company here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, part of the year ahead in luxury. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. We 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 well, Carol, as you were saying, so much back and forth, although not so much directly, just playing out in tweets and public statements. Uh, it feels like not just yeah. every day, almost every hour. Uh, it certainly feels that way. Sean Donnan, Senior Trade and Globalization Reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from our Washington 99 1 studio there in the nation's capital. Sean, great to be with you, at least virtually. Wonderful to be here. So. Give us the current state of play. Like right this minute, the president, I believe, on his way, literally in the air right now, uh, to Buenos Aires, scheduled to meet with President Xi of China. Where are we at this moment in terms
3: of what we expect from those talks? Well, Charlie had that great word, didn't he? Uh, Whipsaw. That's (laughs) kind of where we've been all along on on these China trade negotiations. And just like in the last six hours, uh, we've gone back and forth. Uh, It feels like just you know it feels like a month ago almost that i woke up this morning and and uh and the president had tweeted how much he loves tariffs and and uh, uh for the 100th time and 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 we felt like we we're going you know things were not going to be looking good uh this weekend but then just before he gets on the helicopter uh to head off to air force one in argentina he he had th- this line on he thinks that they're close to something uh didn't really uh, expand much on, on what that is. But we do know that that, that uh, U.S. and Chinese officials for a few weeks now have been working on the contours of a deal, something that they could announce at the, uh, uh, after this dinner on Saturday night. And both leaders are keen not to, to go into this dinner or come out of this dinner without something to show for it. Uh, and that deal has been, what they've been talking about is some kind of ceasefire possibility. That's, so that's our kind of best case scenario for where we are now. But, you know, 48 hours feels like a long time these days in Washington. And what (laughs) happens between now and and Saturday night and uh, what the president's mood is there, what actually Xi Jinping brings to the table, uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around.
0: I mean, Sean, ultimately comes down to that dinner, correct? Or are we assuming that stuff will be leaked out ahead of time so that by the time they get to the dinner, they're going to have everything done?
3: So in a normal world, they, everything is done and it gets leaked out ahead. Of, of time. Wait, wait, wait! Did you say do, normal
0: world? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> Come yeah, on, Sean. On. I, know, <laughs> I know, I know.
3: But look, the the world I live in now is is isn't normal. Uh, um, people are interested in trade for the first version. Uh, yeah, year. you're the hottest guy around, man. Which is just unusual, you know. Um, the <laughs> uh, the I I look. A lot depends on what goes into this dinner, but we also we, we need to kind of step back and 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 say. The best thing that can come out of this dinner is some kind of ceasefire and agreement to have more talks. So this is not going to be the end of the trade war. Saturday night is not going to be the peace in the world. It's not going to be uh, the end of the trade wars. The trade wars are going to be with us well into 2019. We're going to be having these these conversations uh, well into next year um, because the issues between the U.S. and China are just so big. one of the big objections that the, the Trump administration has to China is its, its industrial policy. And that's kind of foundational for, for, for Xi Jinping and the right. Chinese economy. That's not something that's going to change over dinner uh, and steak and a couple of glasses of Malbec in Buenos Aires.
0: Well, wait a minute. It, Will it ever change? I mean, this is, you know, well, every it, country it, has a right to put, fo- you know, push forward its industries. Um, so I, I don't even know how this can I can't see China changing at all, I guess no, is my
3: point. No, I, I, I can't either. I I don't think that's going to go away. And 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 I don't think China is all of a sudden going to decide that the, the economic model that got it to where it is today in the world, uh, that it has rolled out over the last 30 years, is suddenly it's going to change uh, and, and abandon that. But what we could get uh, it, coming out of this, and again this is the best case scenario, is a series of, of – uh, of discussions that the tariffs that are in place now remain the threat of, of further escalation remains uh, you get some kind of maybe a, 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 a gesture by the Chinese to buy to drop their tariffs on right. soybeans which would which would please farmers in in the midwest and would be a big political victory short term for 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 president trump and then you go into a discussion and those discussions go up and down. We get more whipsawing over the next year, but that actually there's a, a, a tough engagement and, possibly some some change uh, and at least a more constructive conversation rather than uh, a procession of tit-for-tat terror. Sean Donnan is Senior Trade and
1: Globalization Reporter for Bloomberg, joining us from our ninety nine one studio down there in the nation's capital. Sean, always great to catch up with you. You know you got a busy week and weekend ahead, for sure. I think
0: it's going to be fascinating, right? Because this is going to play out over the weekend, so we'll all be kind of glued to headlines coming out, and I assume that they will continue to leak out, and then we'll see what kind of You know, this plays right into the Asian market open. And we'll see how that uh, the markets react there based on what we get from that meeting.
1: And and I really liked what Sean was alluding to in terms of the time frame that's important to each of these leaders. You know, you you hear a lot that culturally, you know, China tends to think not just in decades, but in centuries and generations. And obviously the current administration and the president, uh, you know, think in terms of tweets and news cycles and elections. I'm a hard, hard worker
0: Yes, workers, man, there's a lot of that, a lot of things kind of coming at the labor environment right now. In fact, one of the major themes, I feel like, Jason, that came out at the Bloomberg, the Year Ahead Summit, held at our headquarters yesterday, was taking a look at technology, data, and all this stuff, and kind of the good and bad of things like artificial intelligence and what it means kind of for the world at large, but also, I think, people thinking about what it means for the workforce as well. So back with us to talk about this is Robert Bell. He's co-founder at Intelligent Community. It's a think tank. It's really helping communities use information communications technology thinking about the 21st century community you've been looking into the impact of AI on jobs and I do feel like a lot of folks are trying to figure out good bad and different I keep hearing technology and humans working together how do you see it
4: Well, you've got to take the scary headlines and figure out whether they're real and then look at the nuance, right? So back in 2013, a couple of Oxford researchers put out a a study, and the headline from it was that technology advances will destroy 47% of U.S. jobs in the next 20 years. Armageddon. Right. Well, it turns out this is a non-peer-reviewed study put together by a couple of young researchers there who... got a massive data dump out of the Department of Labor Statistics and ran some numbers. And so their numbers included, for instance, jobs that are going to be eliminated by AI, fashion models, um, carpet installers, manicurists, and my own personal favorite, school bus drivers, because there's nothing I'd rather do for my eight-year-old child than put that kid on a bus with a bunch of other kids and no adult supervision. (laughs) So that study wasn't really real What's What we're coming to see, and I'm sure it was discussed at your your event, is it's not really jobs so much that are going to be eliminated, it's job tasks. Right. the things we do. But
0: it's getting more sophisticated. And I think about, Jason, one of the stories that was in the magazine that t- took a look at, um, I guess essentially it was, was it venture capitalists investing in startups and ideas? And they talk about, you know, thousands of ideas come across their desks. They don't have enough time to go through them. But you start to create AI models or machine learning uh, models that take uh, different uh, investment criteria into consideration and you can some of those smaller deals can kind of be filtered through that way and and they can be investing in them and kind of focus on some other deals so i mean it is getting more and more sophisticated in terms of ai
4: well though a few a couple of years ago there was a, a investment firm of some kind that made headlines by declaring that an algorithm was going to become a member of its board of directors <laughs> uh, i don't know but how i much- was
0: talking with somebody recently too about the medical community saying you know what you're going to see more and more people being kind of diagnosed um, through computers who can really pull in the latest and greatest research, can pull in, you know, tons of data about people who have similar ailments. So, I mean, it is going to
4: change things. It's change tremendously. I mean, McKinsey did some nice work in this. Um, they estimate about 5% of the occupations are going to actually have so many of their tasks eliminated that they're not going to be there. So we're talking about sewing machine operators. And, and the... The poor people on the assembly line who've been taking the brunt of this all along. Right. You go to in the other end economies. of that. You go to the other end of that. Their estimate is about sixty percent of all occupations will have about thirty percent of their tasks automated. Yeah. Which means your job changes drastically, but doesn't necessarily go away.
1: So one of the other things that changes, and and you wrote a great book called Brain Gain: How Innovative Cities Create Job Growth in an Age of Disruption. And you know, coming off of this conference that we had yesterday, that that we've been talking about. I sat down with the head of the New York City Transit Commission, you know, th- who obviously thinks about cities a lot. We're on the, uh, you know, on coming right off of the announcement that Amazon is going to locate part of its HQ2 uh, here in New York City. So thinking about jobs and cities and how that changes the type of people who, who live in cities and how they make a living. So take us inside that process. How are our sort of daily lives going to change even beyond how we work.
4: Well, I mean we've already seen the wave of that in our daily lives. The bigger concern for cities is what about the, all the people who are not going to come along with that revolution easily, right. right? What do you do with your citizens, your taxpayers who are not necessarily going who are going to have 70% of their job tasks go away. This is an area that frankly we've never done a very good job at in the states, but I mean we just need obviously to take those people and to help them come along, give them some skills, figure out what the new jobs are going to be and train them for those new jobs.
1: So give us an example of what a new job could be. Like oh, you've looked into this a lot.
4: One of my favorites is the is favorite uh, new jobs of our new era is the job of the person, I can't remember what it's called, who's going to explain to you what the AI just did. Yeah. Because if, you, if the AI yeah. is making more and more decisions, how do you know they're good ones? Well, you need somebody who understands that to a, a really sophisticated degree and s- can say to you, it made these determinations because. Now, the trick, of course, is that Google doesn't even know what's inside its search algorithm anymore. Right. Because it's been so refined over time Does by matter, machine what's intelligence. It? It's what? Its search algorithm. Oh, Go- search. Google's you Google's know, original
1: claim to fame was search. Because the machine is teaching itself sort of without any human intervention.
4: Well, with some human rights. Right. There's, a new, there's a new thing in AI called adversarial machine learning, which is what you get two machines to compete with each other to do something, and they both get smarter faster.
0: But you do wonder, too, if uh, biasness, prejudices are being pulled out uh, of that data because, right, I mean, it's only as good as the data put in. And it's only as so, good as
4: the human beings. Right? right,
0: exactly, exactly. I am curious, though, you, you know, some of the research you sent over to us in getting ready for this discussion is you say something unexpected, though, is happening, job churn and job losses have been below average for 20 years. So are you saying that the, you know, the hysterics over computers, technology, AI, what have you, um, taking away jobs, we're not necessarily seeing that?
4: Well, we're going to see a lot of churn, but I mean, the specific statistic was that in the past 20 years, the pace at which we've seen job categories vanish and new job categories be created has been 62% lower than from 1950 to 2000, which is fundamentally most of my life. Mm-hmm. So we've actually been less. There's been less churn than during that period of un- unprecedented growth in this country, right? Job losses in general have been half of what they were in the '60s, '70s, or '90s. So, one one story about AI is that it's going to provide a productivity boost that's going to create tremendous economic dynamism. And the question is how. Widely can we share that? We don't want it to all go to the top 10%. How widely can we share that boom?
1: How much do you, How much time do you spend and you and your colleagues spend thinking about sort of the ethics around uh, AI and kind of what we should do, what we shouldn't be doing, and whether we even have enough control over it
4: at this there, point? There's a Stanford University professor who is actually named, named uh, Fei-Fei, who's actually – that is her study, and she's trying to get the entire – Industry of AI to focus on the sheer issue of ethics because you said it. Mm-hmm. The machine is not a machine. The machine is a human being translated, you know, into code. Yeah. And so we all, you know, we've all seen stories about the about AI recognizing, you know, turning turning people into gorillas and so forth. Yeah, that's extremely important. And the more powerful this becomes in our lives, just as with anything else, the more we're going to need to police it. It's one of the things I always find fascinating about technologies is. When we, when we get excited about a technology and we start incorporating it, we forget all the other lessons we've learned. And every single new wave of technology has had the same sets of issues. Yeah. Well,
0: it's funny because I think about Mindy Grossman again, going back to her. And I know I've talked about her a lot because I had a conversation with her. But she a book she's reading right now, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Uh, it was out in 2017, but it it's just interesting, those searches, and there's biasness in everything we do. Robert Bell. Thank you. Always fun to check in with you. Co-founder at Intelligent Community Forum, joining us on this Thursday in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio.
2: I'm a traveling man. Just Did you get to, it?
1: I get it. I was just making sure uh, where we we're going here. So as we've been talking about, the year ahead in luxury is happening just upstairs from us here at Bloomberg headquarters. Harvey Spivak is executive chairman and managing partner of Equinox Holdings. He's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. An old friend, Harvey, great to have you with, Carolyn and myself. Thanks for having me. Uh, old friend who looks great, I should say, uh, thank, since, thank we're, since we are uh, on radio. Uh So what's happening in the world of wellness? Because, you know, one of the most fascinating things I think about Equinox is you specifically, personally, and the company were really among the first to start thinking about wellness as a lifestyle. And it feels like everything you are doing now at the company, you personally, is really thinking through that lens, whether it's the hotel or travel. So bring us up to
5: date. What does that look like? So uh, thank you and good to see you again, Jason, and meet you, Carol. But I, I would say, first of all, I personally, and I'll probably say something a little controversial. I don't like the word wellness mm. because it's a very misunderstood word. Is it medical? Is it insurance? Is it fitness? But I would say we were pioneers, starting back in 1991, of really, you know, talking about fitness as a lifestyle. Yeah. And you know, a- interesting little story back in uh, 2002. Um, you know, right after 9-11, there was a gentleman named David Lippman. David was had his own uh, creative advertising agency when they were called advertising right. agencies. But he was a very creative um, gentleman. And I, I didn't know David, um, but we had a lot of mutual friends. And he said, I, I need to talk to you. So, sure, you know, got together with David. And David said, you changed my life. And I said, well, I'm happy to hear that. Um, how's that? And he said, well, I lived in Tribeca during 9-11. And I was um, uprooted. My whole family was uprooted because of what happened. And the thing that brought me back and kept me sane and healthy emotionally, physically, and spiritually was Equinox. And I want to tell the world the Equinox story. And I said, well, appreciate that. We've got our agency of record. He goes, well, let me – I don't pitch, but let me just pitch you some stuff. (laughs) And he pitched us some phenomenal creative. And he was very fashion-oriented, which always was our brand. Yeah. But he came up at the time with a tagline of, it's not fitness, it's life. And it's very unusual for a brand to have a tagline that survives a year, yet a couple years. And that has been our tagline since 2003, to the credit of David. And think about 15 years later, it's, it's never been more true. Absolutely. I mean, and so... Health is the new wealth, that's what we talk about. And at Equinox, we don't talk about wellness, but we talk about specifically for Equinox community, we talk about high-performance living. Mm. And we've always been good at anticipating where the consumer wants to go, and I talked about that on the panel. And the obvious evolution of that is, today, people work out or somehow participate in a healthy lifestyle daily. That could be in what they're wearing, that could be what they're eating, that could be their workout routine. You know, 10 years ago, if you worked out twice a week, you were a little weird. You were a little like extreme, <sighs> so true. right? Today, it's, it's all about no days off. Yeah. Used to be no pain, no gain. Now it's about no days off.
0: Right. You actually and, feel guilty when you don't do it. Correct. Like, like, so wait, so, so the, I'm missing something from my life.
5: So there's something that you're doing. And so if you think about that, we have become such a big part of people's lives. And so now, if, if you think about how Equinox is created, it's all coming towards us. Yeah. And so now our members are saying, I want more. I don't want just what happens in the four walls. I want more digitally from you, and I also want to maintain that routine when I travel. And we've all experienced it when you travel, it's almost impossible to maintain a healthy routine, whether it's, you know, a hotel with not the right food or, you know, not a great sleep environment. Or the simplest, just not having a good in hotel gym. A
1: terrible gym, right. And,
5: and so that is really, you know, we've always been in the hospitality business, but that was really what, you know, kind of gave us permission to extend into hospitality from a hotel perspective. And we couldn't be more excited about that well, I think about starting J- in 19.
0: Jason and I are, are kind of all in on our Pelotons, but it's like that high idea. You go to a hotel and they put the Peloton in your room or something, or there's rooms with Peloton. Like you're able to kind of okay i'm not home but i can continue my workout routine i mean that kind of that whole concept and like you said it's part of your life so you're gonna
5: want a soul cycle bike in that uh, (laughs) oh sorry sorry (laughs) just wait for 2019 we'll have some stuff to talk about
0: (laughs) so tell me then so what are we going to get from you when it comes are you getting ready to open up your first hotel right in new york
5: Correct. Uh, J- June of uh, 2019, Hudson Yards. So what are we going to get? First of six, they're already under development.
0: So what are we going to get out of the hotel? What are we going to get from you guys when it comes to travel?
5: So so if you think about it, um, and I'm going to be a little high level here, but if you think about it, um, the high performance lifestyle will extend into high performance travel. And it's for those who want it all. So Jason has heard me talk about this, this notion of work-life balance It doesn't really apply, certainly, to our demographic. I mean, people still throw it out there, but that's not how we all live our life. We all, you just talked about in your hotel room, we all trying to figure out ways to get in everything we want to get in, right? Right. I want to professionally succeed. I want to personally succeed. I want to have a great family. I want to have great relationships. I want to have great friends. I want to have fun. I want to be healthy. Well, that's like 30 hours a day, (laughs) right? So the notion around the hotel is it's for those who want it all. And around high-performance living, the, the three pillars we talk about is what makes for a high performance lifestyle is movement activity on some level
0: just got about 20 seconds
5: n- nutrition eating and recovery or regeneration and so those will be the kind of guiding principles around the hotel but also still luxury positions so service oriented you know very active like-minded people informing community so we're, we're going be more excited
1: you're going to have to come back and spend more time with us. Harvey Spivak, Executive Chairman and Managing Partner for Equinox Holdings here as part of the year ahead in luxury. You are listening to Bloomberg Businessweek.
2: I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Hey, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for the drive to the close on this Thursday. Michael Sheldon is Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial Group. Back with us, he's joining us on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Michael, nice to have you here. You know, it's interesting, Dave Wilson. Uh, our stocks editor who does charts of the day I feel like he's been often now bringing in charts that where folks are looking at the valuation of the market at this point and the latest one he brought in today talked about how the valuation level it's uh, just above the average of 15.9 um, since that was the average between March of '09 and when the S&P began climbing so it's interesting we're right now I think on the S&P um, as low as about 16.1 last week the valuation of the market more attractive, more interesting. People finding it, uh, you know, it's catch, catching everybody's attention. What do you make of the valuation of the market? Is, is it a buy signal to you, or what does it say?
6: Well, the valuation has definitely come down somewhat. It was, uh, I think, it was around 18 times back in January of this year before before the market uh, took a hit and then it has come down recently. Historically, it's interesting, when the Fed's raising interest rates and you get towards the latter end of a cycle, uh, P-E ratios do tend to decline somewhat. So that's not uh, abnormal. And, again, I think that's because of because of the rising interest rates from the Fed. Um, and I think, more broadly speaking, it, it's it's important to think less about the valuation levels, although those certainly matter, and just sort of think about where we are in the economic cycle the three big headwinds that everyone's talking about right now, and that matter most, are the trade battle with China, the future path of interest rates and the Fed, and really the fact that growth is likely to slow next year, both from a GDP and, and corporate profit perspective. I think those are the those are the three big factors that everyone's trying to get their hands around as we head into 2019.
1: And what are the you know, one of the interesting things we've been looking at is. What are the sectors that start to to emerge uh, a, a little bit more in this type of market, in this less certain, shall we say, uh, type of market? Where are you advising clients to uh, put
3: money?
6: So as we look ahead to 2019, I think the one thing we can – pretty much all agree on or it seems most likely is we're probably likely to see somewhat more volatility and uncertainty next year than we have seen over the past several years during a period when interest rates were kept extremely low. So given that sort of outlook, uh, the two sectors that we favor the most are going into next year are technology and healthcare for, for different reasons. Technology has growth. They have actually some value, Companies are raising dividends. They're a beneficiary of um, cash repatriation from overseas. And then in terms of health care, that sort of is a middle ground between, between growth and value. We think the outlook there for many companies is fairly stable. You get a number of growth at a reasonable price or GARP-type companies in there. That in in general, in terms of the individual stocks, we're we're really looking for. By the way, GARP,
1: are... I love that growth at a reasonable price. I've never, Have you heard that?
0: Before? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I don't, yeah.
6: I've been
0: around a little bit.
1: Oh, okay.
6: Well, we <laughs> can right. talk
0: more about
1: that later if you'd like. <laughs> All right.
6: Sorry.
0: School starts at five. Oh Jason. goodness <laughs> gracious! Are you,
1: are, Michael? Are you hearing this? Sorry, go on. I interrupted having, you uh, with no, my no ignorance, comment. and then Carol decided to pile on. Go on. That's <laughs> okay. Um,
6: so in terms of individual stocks, we're looking at higher quality companies, companies that are generating stable free cash flow, strong credit ratings, positive earnings per share and sales, companies able to raise their dividend on a more sustainable basis. I think these companies are more likely to to stand out and uh, be project uh, stability and growth in what could be a more volatile environment next year. And More recently, you've seen some of the sort of laggards, like utilities, consumer staples, um, start to do better. And it's kind of a tough call at this point. There are a number of companies I heard somebody recommending McDonald's, and we own them. We've owned them for for quite a while in our income model as a dividend growth play. But it's hard to justify buying them now. There was an upgrade today because they're trading at something like 24 times next year's earnings. So I'd hold on to a stock like that. But – um, but you're not it's going hard to chase some of them. these yeah. consumer staple and and um, uh, utility type stocks.
1: Well, let me ask you briefly about tech because tech had such an amazing run throughout twenty eighteen. It's obviously been a bit of a rocky uh, past couple months. Go down a level are there are there certain sort of subsectors or names that that you are especially excited about or think have some potential in nineteen?
6: Yeah, that's a really good point. As you look ahead, one of the things as financial advisors, our job is to look ahead, first of all, to create financial plans for clients. Uh, People fill out their budgets. We have to figure out the rate of return clients need in order to meet their long-term investment goals. And then when we build portfolios, we're really looking for themes and ideas that can – make the kind of returns that clients need to to meet their long-term investment objectives. So one of the areas we're excited about is in technology. There are a number of sort of sub-themes. So we're looking at things like cloud computing, web services, autonomous vehicles, artificial intelligence. And we think having a little bit of this sprinkled into your portfolios could help generate the kind of growth that clients need over time, um, along with balance, to meet their long-term investment goals.
0: But, Michael, what about the large-cap tech that's been beaten up as well? I mean, is that something that you're considering? I mean, are the Apples or the Netflix or the Amazons of this world necessarily going to go away?
6: Well, we own some of those names, and, uh, you know, some of them we like. Some of them we think are a little too rich and overvalued. But you want to have some of those names, and you just look at them in a case-by-case basis, and you do your due diligence. But there are some exciting ideas in technology, and, and it, it's – it's hard to believe that you know if you look. If you, it's hard to build a portfolio with just things like um, REITs and utilities yeah. and consumer staples. You also need some some growth. Uh, to balance out your portfolio and generate the kind of returns that clients need uh, over in the next three to five years. No, it's so a it's a balancing act. It's
0: a good reminder, right? <laughs> I mean, we talk about it all the time: balanced portfolio. But yeah, you got to kind of keep a mixture of stuff. Michael Sheldon, nice to check in with you on this Thursday. Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer over, over at RDM Financial Group, on the phone from Westport, Connecticut.
1: Very interesting conversation. I learned something, Broke of course. At a
0: reasonable price. I know. I
1: don't know. I don't. I'm not as smart as you are. No, you know? I would like, never say that. I know You're a few smart. things, but there are things that I just don't know. But I thought you that thought was, it was the
0: world according to Garb.
1: I did. I did. That's the best yeah. thing. I was an English major. Cut me some slack. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.